hello and welcome to Monocle 24's The Urbanist, the show all about the cities we live in. I'm Andrew Tuck. Coming up on today's programme. Cities are closest to the citizens and so much of the climate transition has to be done within the realm of cities. We cast our eyes to the climate to look at ways in which our cities can lead the charge in transitioning to a better future for our natural world. From a software company looking to help municipalities in Sweden become the shining example of climate progress to a city in the Balkans looking for ways to solve their own air pollution problems. That's all ahead over the next 30 minutes right here on The Urbanist with me, Andrew Tuck. Environmental issues are a global problem and as such, solutions need to be cross-platform and cross-discipline in order to exact real progress towards a sustainable future. Cities surely play a large part in the problem. As centres for commerce and communication, they're also centres for pollution, with most estimates holding cities responsible for over two-thirds of the world's greenhouse gas emissions. One organisation looking to turn the narrative around for cities is Climate View, a software company that collects and organises data about climate change to find solutions to our environmental challenges. They believe that a major factor in potential progress hinges on accountability and leadership within major and mid-sized municipalities and have been enlisted by the Swedish Climate Policy Council to help the country become the first in the world to put weight behind its goal of reaching net zero emissions by 2045. Well, I'm joined now by Thomas Shallett, the CEO and founder of Climate View, and also by Marika Palmer-Rivera, the Climate Roadmap Process Leader for Uppsala, one of the Swedish cities taking part in a pilot study to break down their overall climate mission into measurable goals. It's called Transition Targets. Toma, perhaps we can start with you. Can you explain to our listeners what Climate View is and how you operate? What Climate View is, it's pretty straightforward. We help cities plan and execute their climate transition plans. So a city that has a goal, say, achieving carbon neutrality by 2035, we start with breaking down that goal into achievable and actionable targets. And additionally, we also give the city a common language that they can share knowledge across the city and between cities. And tell me, how do you find cities to collaborate with I know there's a huge amount of information out there. There's a huge amount of demands, so many reports. Many of these city councils must already be overwhelmed with people saying, I can help you. Why do they listen to you? What is it that you bring them as a potential partner? I think a systemized and structured approach, methodology, and a clear idea of how to achieve change. Cities will recognize this problem. I mean, several cities have really ambitious climate goals. But then just breaking it down into small enough chunks so that they are actionable so you can start working with them, that's a problem that all cities face. And we are presenting a a sort of clear framework for doing that within. Now, let's bring in Marika here. Marika, your climate roadmap process leader for Uppsala. Why did you want to partner with Toma? What did you see as the opportunity here? Well, Uppsala, we have worked for many years now with data-driven climate work, and we have found that we have solutions that can help us achieve our very ambitious climate goals. But our big challenge is to scale up climate action fast enough. We see that we have to move from 
now we achieve around 1% to 2% reduction of emissions each year. And we have to move to around 10 to 15% reduction of carbon emissions every year. And what that means is that we really have to mobilize the whole of the city and society to scale up action. And, and what we need for that is to visualize, to clearly visualize what we need to do and the actions required to get there. So that is why we started working with ClimateU and in other ways to really mobilize all the actors that we we're working with to make sure that we focus on the right things. So there's this site which is transition targets where people can see how you're doing against certain metrics, but I guess it's dependent on you having a huge amount of information. First of all, who is using that? Is your hope that members of the public who care about climate change in the city will be going on there and tracking your success or even your failures as you move through the years ahead? Yeah, for the future, I think that would be one of our goals. What we do now is that we have a local climate agreement in Uppsala called the Uppsala Climate Protocol, which has 40 organizations as members that employ around 40% of the workforce of the city. And we have had this agreement for 10 years. But what we do now with the transition targets is that we use them to focus the work we do within the climate protocol to form uh, task forces and concrete cooperation projects to accelerate climate action. So that is what we mostly we're using it for right now. When you go on on the site, when those participants in the protocol go and look at the targets and what's being achieved, what are some of the things that you're tracking that you're, you want people to be focusing on? Well, we have just started with the transition targets, but I can give you one example that's made us very clear that we're working with in building and construction because we have a housing shortage in Uppsala. So we have to build new residential areas very fast while we have to retrofit old buildings, of course. So what we're doing with the transition targets in building and construction is that we're working with the city planners and others, and then we can clearly see that we really need to focus on, for example, fossil-free building materials and energy efficiency and retrofitting. There are, of course, other things we could do and other things that are discussed, but the transition targets show us that these are the things that we need to focus on. And then we can work with different actors and collect all the actions that are planned and underway for each transition targets. And then we can identify gaps to see this is where we need to do more or maybe we should refocus some things we are doing. So that's yeah, one way we are using it within the climate protocol. Toma, tell me, why the, the focus on the city level? I, I know that you're also working with the Swedish Climate Policy Council, but there's a, a real focus here on what individual cities can do. Why the focus at that level? Well, it's not either or, but I think both. But cities, in many ways, cities are closest to the citizens, and so much of the climate transition is actually has to be done within the realm of cities. Also, 70% of the world's population live in cities. So cities are in many ways, we can see as sort of the drivers, the necessary drivers of the transition, because of course, there's working a lot with transportation and working a lot with housing, two of the most important areas. But of course, it's not either or. Cities don't work in a vacuum. They exist in a nation, they work in regions. But uh, that way, cities are very good drivers and can help each other. And that's another very important aspect of cities. They're very interested in helping each other. It's a very good community where their challenges are pretty symmetrical across sort of the world. And so by helping by one city working, they're helping lots of other cities. So it's a sort of a powerful lever to change of society. I know this is an open data project. Is your hope that other 
city leaders and activists around the world will will log on and see what Uppsala is doing and try and copy what's happening there? Exactly that. I think we see open data as absolutely necessary to drive the transition. We need experience and knowledge sharing on an unprecedented scale. And as I just said, there's cities are very interested in sharing their knowledge and the, the challenges are symmetrical. So the more we can share, the better. And also, we noticed there's a lot of reinventing the wheel when it comes to, say, carbon abatement analysis, calculating what a specific change of going to electric vehicles or high level of public transport. Those kinds of analysis are often done time after time by different cities. And that's unnecessary. We don't have time with that. That's costly and it's timely. So we want to make sure that these kinds of analyses are shared as broadly and systematically as possible. Marika, how is your city doing? I know that there are hopes that by 2045, you'll have net zero emissions. There's this desire to be completely carbon free in the coming years. How are you doing? That's an interesting question. As I said, we have uh, reduced our emissions in the past. Now we have averaged around 1% to 2% per year. So we really have to scale up so we can reduce emissions by like 14% per year. Starting now and every year, the coming decades, of course, it's a big challenge. What I think that we have that gives me a, a lot of confidence is that we have very broad political support within the city and also we have this local arena, the climate protocol, where there's a lot of interest from the private sector and the civil society as well as the public sector to cooperate and co-create climate action together. So I think that's what gives me hope that we can achieve our goals. But of course, it's going to take a lot of work. And as Tomer said, it's also going to take a lot of sharing of experience between cities. Tell me, you know, maybe anecdotally, what your personal view is, you know, that we're seeing in many cities that we speak to on the show, a kind of complicated moment as they navigate this year of the pandemic. And one of the things that people are seeing is a in many cities, an uptick in the use of traditional cars as people don't want to go on public transport. Obviously, fossil-free transport, a reduction in car usage is important for all cities if they want to meet these important targets. When you look out the window of your city, what's your feeling about what's happening to that target for transport? That's interesting. I feel like we have worked a lot, many years in Uppsala with cycling especially in the past few years with lots of investment in cycling. I think that is something that has helped us during these times. Of course, the public transport has been not abandoned. We haven't had a lockdown or in Sweden as maybe in other countries, but it has been more use of cars. But I think that there's been a lot of focus on cycling and to improving the infrastructure and the facilities for that. So I don't think we have seen a, a huge increase in car usage Toma, when you look at the the innovative work happening in many Nordic cities, is the Nordic region really the pioneers on this use of data and in this way of motivating people to bring about change? I think this is happening a lot in different places. I think Sweden as pioneer has always been a sort of a very open when it comes to open data and the sort of openness of on transparency of government. Sweden has always been, has a good tradition of that. So it's a good starting point. So in that sense, I think it's been a very good ground to start with this. But even say in the UK, I feel there's a lot of initiatives and the idea that we need to share information and we are in this challenge together 
is shared. It's happening all over the place at the same time, hopefully. And Toma, just tell me, finally, for other people listening to the show, we understand how organizations can look at this data and log in and see how you're doing. But what would be some of the things that you would encourage people to think about for their own cities? What are some achievable targets that they can begin to work towards? I would say one of the targets that I feel that gets lost because it's not that sexy in a sense is housing efficiency. That's a target where we have a lot of impact. There's a long cycle of doing something about it on many years of investment. And it doesn't give instant immediate benefit, but it's a very important target. I mean, you could easily answer about electromobility and walking and cycling and all those targets, but I feel those are often known and those are the ones I'm talking about. And I feel there's some really important targets which are going to make really big impact and need a long sort of time to start implementing. Marika, for you as well, maybe you mentioned housing at the very beginning of this interview. Is that also an area where you think that people should be looking to when they begin to tackle these targets? As Tomer said as well, that transport is, of course, an important sector, but a lot of work is going on there. What we have seen is that housing is a, a very important sector for us where lots of emissions are concealed, sort of, because we haven't really followed them up until recently. We haven't calculated how much, for example, embodied carbon there is in all the building material that we're using. So I think there's lots of work to do there. Marika Palmer-Rivera and Thomas Shallett, thank you very much for joining us here on The Urbanist. Up next, we go offshore. Stay with us. Monocle's Nick Manise has caught wind of some positive news in the energy sector recently. Here he is to tell us more. In December 2019, the EU launched its Green Deal, setting a target for Europe to become climate neutral by 2050. For cities, this will mean the rollout of clean transport options, increases in urban biodiversity, a greener economy and use of sustainable energy sources. And when it comes to these energy sources and their output, offshore wind energy is a leader. Why? Well, offshore wind farms have enormous advantages over onshore farms. The wind is stronger and more reliable, and public blowback from the installation of massive wind turbines in the sea is minimal when compared to those installed on the land. So, to boost their rollout, The European Commission unveiled a roadmap earlier this month that looks to increase offshore wind energy production in the continent's waters. Due to be launched formally in October, it's the first such strategy from the bloc, and its aim is to boost electricity generated by wind power 20-fold within the next 30 years. The plan's success will hinge on a cooperative rollout from governments and energy providers that will need to ensure that there's plenty of space between wind farms. If they're located too close to one another, turbulence can be created and the airflow to turbines can be hindered, dramatically reducing power production. Energy companies in Denmark and Germany have already flagged this issue, saying that if efforts aren't combined or well organised, these so-called blockage effects and wake effects will be detrimental to the EU's green ambitions. Although such understandings and coordination will be key, stakeholders are hopeful that the initiative will run smoothly. Energy providers are already studying ideal placements. And, according to Denmark's Energy and Climate Minister, Dan Jurgensen, even countries that aren't hugely ambitious about cutting emissions or contributing to the EU's goals are still interested in investing in renewables. Here's hoping that the winds don't change. Thanks, Nick. That's Monocle's Nick Manise there. 
To finish today, we head to Belgrade, a city that last winter found itself ranked number one in the world. But it wasn't a cause for celebration in Serbia's capital because it found itself at the top of the list of the world's most polluted cities. It reflects the struggles with air quality facing people in cities across the Western Balkans. Old cars, legacy industries and traditional farming techniques are all part of the problem. Our man in the Balkans, Guy Delorny, took a deep breath before going outside to find out more. If you ride your bike around the centre of Belgrade, a couple of things quickly become clear. Firstly, this isn't a very cycle-friendly city. The traffic is heavy, drivers are aggressive, and there's very little consideration for road users on two wheels. Secondly, the air quality is visibly poor. You can see the haze hanging around the tower blocks of New Belgrade well into the morning. The worst parts of the city for the pollution would probably be the city centre and areas where the traffic is most intense, like around the Brankos Bridge and big junctions. Jasna Sizla is an architect and urbanist and a member of the campaign group Ulica za Bicicliste, in other words, Streets for Cyclists. It's important to promote cycling as a sustainable mean of transport uh, uh, especially in conditions like this where when our city is really polluted I think it's important that someone here tries to promote cy- cycling and to fight for like better conditions for cyclists in the city cycling is in Belgrade is a bit like extreme sport Uh, So it's fun, it's exciting, but you have to uh, struggle. It's it's challenging sometimes because of the traffic, which is really intense, and uh, also with with the recent pollution problems, it, it can be really challenging. In fact, it's challenging to everyone's health. In the winter months, Belgrade regularly popped up near the top of the charts, ranking the world's most polluted cities. On more than one occasion, it took the top spot, ahead of the usual suspects like Delhi, Dhaka and Hanoi. And that's reflected in health statistics in Serbia, which show that pollution is taking a heavy toll. Marian Ivanusha is the head of the World Health Organization's office in Serbia. Approximately 3,600 people die early in Serbia, out of them approximately 2,000 in Belgrade. In high-income countries, the resources available to address the root causes of air pollution are much bigger, which means that policymakers have more resources to address the problem. In transition countries or middle-income countries like Serbia is, those resources are much more limited. People are not that rich to, to buy fancy electric cars or fancy cars with very good technologies, with catalyzers and so on. Electric cars are a rare sight indeed on Belgrade streets, although the city does boast trolleys, electric buses and trams in its public transport mix. 
But Belgrade also has some of Europe's oldest and most polluting vehicles. Serbia is the only country in the Western Balkans which still allows the import of vehicles made to Euro 3 emission standards, rules which expired 15 years ago. Last year, cars made before 2009 accounted for more than two-thirds of used vehicle imports. But the country's environmental protection minister, Goran Trivan, insists that things are changing. There's been a big swing in public opinion, and this is very important. Over the past two years, citizens have become much more sensitive about environmental questions, and they're putting pressure on politicians and institutions to make their lives better. We still face obstructions from business, but in the end, we need to go the same way as all developed countries. But it'll take more than a few new cars to change the pollution picture in Serbia's capital. Andrea Stojic is an air pollution expert at Belgrade University. He says citizens should brace themselves for another smoggy winter. It's a constant problem here in Belgrade and in Serbia because we heat by using coal, uh, low-caloric fuel, so we have to burn a lot of amount of it to produce uh, some amount of heat. Domestic heating or uh, individual heating units are the polluting source. And how difficult is it going to be to change that picture, to to remove or mitigate those sources of pollution? Belgrade has to focus on uh, individual heating units that, uh, that I believe are the main sources of air pollution that will be perhaps providing some remote system of uh, heating. And uh, it has to renew its industry facilities so the amount of emission drop down. And how long do you think it could take to do all of that? If I have to do some forecasts, I think it couldn't be sold in years. Of course, if more people rode bicycles, that might cut down on congestion and the attendant pollution. But Jasna Sizzler of Streets for Cyclists says it'll take time to make the changes. There are many problems and like the, as you know the situation is complicated here and there are many other problems. Uh, so first we have to raise the awareness among people I guess. I think that Belgrade is a very nice city and uh, we already have some, not many, but we have some nice paths next to the river and around Adatsiganlia Lake. And also in the outskirts, if you go out uh, of the city centre, so there's a lot of potential, but it just has to be... Um, if the city was a bit more cycling friendly, it would definitely be used, uh, these parts and these uh, potentials would be used more. With uh, less people using cars and more people using uh, cycling, the city would be at least a bit less polluted, I guess. So I think there would be a lot of benefits if things would change. Clean air would be just one of the advantages, and with evidence linking pollution to COVID-19 deaths, Belgrade should have the incentive to take action, but the city's long-suffering cyclists won't be holding their breath. For Monocle in Belgrade, I'm Guy Delaunay. And that's all for this edition of The Urbanist. Today's episode was produced by Carlotta Rabello and David Stevens, and David also edited the show. 
And to play you out of this week's episode, here's the Lardy Dars with How Is The Air Up There? Thank you for listening, City Lovers. (laughs) 